So basically, ADHD can affect a lot of stuff because it's basically anything that requires management, planning, and coordination can be affected by it. You're listening to the Mindful Mama podcast, episode number 409. Today, we're talking about how parents of ADHD kids can thrive with Dr. Mark Burton. Welcome to the Mindful Mama podcast. Here, it's about becoming a less irritable, more joyful parent. At Mindful Mama, we know that you cannot give what you do not have, and when you have calm and peace within, then you can give it to your children. I'm your host, Hunter Clark Fields. I help smart, thoughtful parents stay calm so they can have strong, connected relationships with their children. I've been practicing mindfulness for over 20 years. I'm the creator of Mindful Parenting, and I'm the author of the best-selling book, Raising Good Humans, a mindful guide to breaking the cycle of reactive parenting and raising kind, confident kids. Welcome back to the Mindful Mama podcast. And if listen, if you haven't done so yet, Go hit that subscribe button so you never miss an episode. And if you get some value from this, if this helps you at all, please go over to Apple Podcasts and leave us a rating and review. It just helps the podcast grow more. It takes like 30 seconds. And I greatly, greatly appreciate it. It makes such a huge difference to me and the whole team that puts on this podcast. In just a moment, I'm going to be sitting down with Dr. Mark Burton, a developmental pediatrician and author of How Children Thrive, Mindful Parenting for ADHD mindfulness and self-compassion for teen ADHD and the family ADHD solution, which integrates mindfulness into the rest of pediatric care. Dr. Burton is on the faculty at New York Medical College and the Windward Teacher Training Institute and on the advisory boards for the American Professional Society of ADHD and Related Disorders, Common Sense Media, and Reach Out and Read. His blog is available through mindful.org, Psychology Today, and elsewhere, and you can find him at developmentaldoctor.com. Now, in this episode, we talk all about ADHD kids and how do parents cope with a kid with challenges like ADHD. Dr. Burton says that ADHD tends to push parents away from the exact parenting approaches that best address ADHD. So we're going to talk about that and how parents can best help ADHD kids and themselves. So join me at the table as I talk to Dr. Mark Burton. Are you struggling with kids fighting, yelling, and more despite listening to the podcast and reading all the books? Parenting can be so overwhelming and exhausting. You know, I see you and I have something that will help. Mindful Parenting SOS. I'm offering free live mindful parenting sessions starting Monday, May 6th. Basically, live mindful parenting lessons that you'd normally have to pay for. So if you struggle with getting your kids to listen, tantrums, misbehavior, and feeling the guilt of yelling at your kid, then you should definitely get your spot in Mindful Parenting SOS. I'll be there to answer your questions in person, and if you can't make it, we will have replays available. Don't wait to get your spot now. It's free. Go to mindfulmamamentor.com slash SOS to register. That's mindfulmamamentor.com slash SOS. I can't wait to see you there. Mark, thank you so much for coming on the Mindful Mama podcast. I'm happy you're here. I'm happy to be here too. Thanks for the invitation. Looking forward to it. Yeah. 
I love to like, I'm so excited to talk to you about ADHD kids and things like that. But I'd love to, you know, things are so different now than what they were. And I'm wondering kind of how were you raised and what was your childhood like? Huh. That's an interesting question. I don't know. It's such a broad question. It's hard to know. Um, how was I raised? I had very, I was very close with my parents, very involved parents, kind of strict and old school in a lot of ways. I think I, uh, I'm still very close with my, uh, well, I'm, I, my dad passed away a long time ago, but when I, with my mom and, um, yeah, I think there was a lot of sense of a lot of, uh, we were a very close extended family. Part of it, I went back to New York and a lot of sort of old school, you know, sometimes things aren't share like stuff too. Just, you know, it was, you know, they were, they were, uh, certainly totally fine setting rules and boundaries when they needed to, but, you know, but we, uh, but it was fun. I mean, it was part of why I moved back from California to New York after a long time is, it's hard to imagine raising kids separate from the extended family because that's very much how I was raised. Oh, that sounds great. Um, you're like running around and aunts and uncles are like yelling out the window. Mark, uh, just, what are you doing? Just, just, just about, actually. Just about. Very much out of a Yeah, that's what it felt to me, at least. Just, you know, I know memory is so hard. You make, you know, you sort of, the stories evolve, but that's totally how it felt to me. Yeah. Just a lot of uh, one side of the street was several different buildings with most of my dad's family and my mom's side of the family was on the other side. So that was, that was my, how I remember growing up. My family was oh my moved out of the Bronx very young. I didn't actually grow up in the city for the most part, but we were in, but we went back every weekend more or less. Oh, wow. Wow. That, so it sounds like, um, it sounds like you, did you have a fair amount of freedom? Um, we did. We did. Even when we moved out, I mean, in the city, it was, um, you know, it was still the city. So we were, we, we moved around a lot, but when I was growing up, you know, my parents' first house, we definitely, you know, one of my memories of growing up is, uh, you know, the parents had to like, just call around to all the houses to try to figure out where all the kids were. Cause you know, we lived on a street with a lot of houses close to each other and a lot of kids and we would just all go running off for the day. And, uh, you know, at the end of the day before we, none of us had uh, phones. So. Awesome. Um, so what made you interested in children's okay. development? Um, and then specifically ADHD. Um, well, I kind of grew up around the field of special education. So, um, although I don't think my life was that linear, it sort of makes sense that I got here. Um, but my family is all in special education, a lot of special education teachers. And, um, when I was going through a rough time as a teenager, one of the most important things that developed for me was I started spending a lot of time volunteering at the local special Olympics because one of our neighbors ran it. And, um, so, um, even though it wasn't like a, you know, I wasn't so driven that I knew like it was all a straight line. And some level, I always felt very connected to working with kids and uh, kind of knew that was going to happen. And um, yeah, and then from there, the ADHD part mostly just evolved. It was almost, uh, it was always interesting uh, to me professionally and then um, was certainly something, you know, people needed. So like my first job, I was the only, if I remember, remember right, I was the only clinician in the practice that was working with kids with ADHD, you had to get a special license back then. And then um, for the prescribing. And then there's a part of it also that sort of, I mean, th this isn't why I did it, but then it became particularly um, connected with in many ways, the research around ADHD and the research around mindfulness are kind of mirror each other, some of it. So, um, so all of that sort of came together and that's how I got here. But I mostly it's just sort of evolved from having always been around this field, really my whole life going back to that's uh that's pretty unusual. If I remember anything about, I mean, I grew up in the 80s and the, you know, I was in high school in the 90s and 
and you seem approximately like maybe you're like a few years older than me. But if I know anything about that time, like it was pretty harsh with special needs yeah. and autism and things like that. Like we the the insults we used, you know, I particularly remember like there was an insult that we used constantly that was just like incredibly horrible to like kids with special needs. Okay. Earlier in your timeline, kind of before you started working with it clinically with kids, you you started practicing mindfulness uh, for your own sake, right? I just feel like I got, I mean, I, was, I feel fortunate to have been introduced to mindfulness in general, but the timing in particular, I, I was introduced to mindfulness um, probably in the early, early mid nineties. Um, and uh, right away felt, um, not that you right away start practicing a ton, but I right away felt like it was a useful thing to start practicing with. So I started dabbling in it back then, um, which was kind of just before the um, explosion of, of um, Henderson in the country. And yeah, I kept it to myself for a lot of years. It, I mean, not that I hid it, but I wasn't sort of talking about it while I was practicing medicine a bunch and uh, all really. And then um, it kind of happened, what I remember is it kind of happened quickly is I, I went to a conference on the research around all of this stuff, you know, mindfulness and stress reduction and concept called neuroplasticity. And so all these uh, really brilliant researchers in this amazing format where they were uh, in discussion with um, a whole bunch of really famous teachers of mindfulness, and uh, including the Dalai Lama. And um, and over the course of that weekend, it's like this light bulb went on, like, I do not know why I'm keeping this out of my medical practice. You know, I have all these families that are so stressed and overwhelmed, and, and that gets talked about, you know, still doesn't get talked about enough, how challenging all of this can be. So from that point, I started exploring different ways to um, bring mindfulness into Western care. and um, really starting with parents mostly. I mean, yeah, it's, it's great to be able to work with kids, but kids are kids. And, you know, the one thing I think it's an important starting point whenever we talk about mindfulness with families is, you know, as much as we you know, might really, really feel pressure to get our kids practicing, the only thing we directly control is whether we practice or not. And that's really the foundation of getting started with any family, I think. Um, well, not any is exaggerated. I mean, there probably are some families where that isn't true, but for the most part, it's going to start with parents. And so what were the benefits? You know, we've talked about mindfulness here, but like just for your, you know, for say to someone who's coming to this the first time, like what were the benefits that you were realizing in your own life that made you want to uh, bring this into your practice? Well, and there's so there, there's so much we could talk about. I think, I guess the, you know, to keep it concise initially, you know, mindfulness is way more practical and hands-on than I think most people know initially, you know, it's not relaxing specifically and it's not some cliche, like it's all good. Yeah, it really is more actively training traits and habits that make life easier to manage, you know, mm -hmm. so it, it very literally is. I mean, you can really break it down that way. Um, for me, um, I was going through residency at the time, which, you know, isn't, I don't want to take any specific credit for that. It's like everyone goes through really intense, stressful times. And for me, that was obvious for anyone who has heard about what residency is like. It was kind of exhausting and stressful and a lot was going on in my life in different ways. So the, you know, the ability to um, just manage stress, manage anxiety, settle myself that comes from practicing mindfulness was so um, exactly what I needed back then. Um, still do, but it's evolved a lot. But um, so it really was just um, 
you know, it just, it just felt like exactly what was needed in that way. It also connected for me in a little bit of a, um, a different way with, uh, I've also have always hiked and backpacked a lot. And back then I was backpacking um, more than I was now, more responsibilities now. And, uh, you know, there was this place I would get to after a few days of backpacking where just my mind would just quiet down. It would feel like I could see, you know, and it wasn't just always, you know, this is a parallel to practicing mindfulness. It's not that everything was great. It was just that it would settle enough that I could start, you know, making decisions and see more clearly what had to happen in my life. And, um, and that's another, you know, and that's very much, you know, you can't, most of us can't backpack all the time, but you can practice mindfulness pretty regularly. So it was sort of like, it felt kind of similar in that way. I can, I can relate so much to all of that, that like before I started a mindfulness practice, I was reading about for many years <laughs> and I would, um, I would hike or I would run in the woods and like in college, I would just run by this Creek through the woods. It, it was like my therapy, you know, to go there and just that feeling of, um, like everything settling down and, and, um, and, you know, that that was enormous for me. And then, you know, uh, getting a little bit of that feeling when I did finally stop just reading about it and actually practice, it made it, I was like, oh, yes, yeah, all of those things I can I can relate to. So then parents of, of ADHD kids, they're going through a lot of stress. They're going through a lot of anxiety. So let's talk to me about what are some of the unique challenges that parents are going through if they ha are raising a kid who has a diagnosis of ADHD? Well, to understand that, you have to, um, I think, recognize kind of the big picture of ADHD first. So, you know, ADHD, I don't know how much in your, in your program you talked about it, but ADHD is a, first of all, it's a proven medical disorder. So in spite of how it's often talked about, it isn't a product of our modern society. It's been described going back, you know, more than a century in different ways. And, um, I mean, one way to sort of shorthand, very much shorthand, but shorthand the science of ADHD is that, you know, the genetic and the genetics of ADHD are almost as strong as the genetics of fate. Yeah, oh, wow. Cool. And you said it goes back in historically. What, what, how did they describe it? You said historically um, or. Well, you know, some of it has to do with just in different medical textbooks described with different names. And some of it's more colloquial, like in the, in the public, like there's a, um, famous in the field, at least book of. There were German poems translated by um, Mark Twain, uh, kind of like grim fairy tales almost. And one of them is called Johnny Head in the Air and yeah. really describes the inattentive type of ADHD. And one of them is called Fidgety Phil. Uh, there are Grimm's fairy tales, and neither of these kids, you know, do so well in the end. Oh, no. <laughs> but, um, but, you know, I mean, clearly, you know, again, that's not medical, that's just colloquial, but there's like lots of stuff like that you can find in just places it's clearly being described. And then the textbooks are describing it from what I understand, like in the late 1800s in different ways. Stay tuned for more Mindful Mama podcast right after this break. I want to tell you about a great podcast that you should check out, especially if you ever deal with any school system, which you probably do. It's called Understood Explains. This season of the show is hosted by teacher and special education expert Juliana Ortube, and it's all about how to navigate individual education plans, also known as IEPs. And the season of Understood Explains covers topics like how to tell if your child needs an IEP and busts common myths about special education. 
So I checked out the episode on the difference between IEPs and 504 plans because my daughter Maggie uses a 504 plan and it was really, really helpful. It went over all the differences, which one's better, how to get them, different myths and what your rights are, all kinds of different things that you should understand if your child may need extra help in education through an IEP or a 504 plan. The tone is super helpful, friendly, and smart. I highly recommend you check it out. To listen to Understood Explains, just search for Understood Explains in your podcast app. That's it. Understood Explains. When it comes to raising kids, there's so much to consider. Things like, what do we feed them? When do we feed them? How do they sleep? What does it look like to raise kind kids? How does their nervous system work? How do I keep myself calm? What are my triggers? There's so much that comes into play. And we are distilling all of that information for you at Voices of Your Village podcast, where we bring experts in the field of early childhood and education and psychology and across the board so that you don't have to comb the internet for information. You get to show up and hang out and have shame-free, judgment-free conversations and insights into what it looks like to raise kind, empathetic, emotionally intelligent humans. I'm Alyssa Blask Campbell. I have a master's degree in early childhood education. I'm a mom of two, and I am walking this journey right alongside you doing this work. Come hang out with me at Voices of Your Village, and we can dive into real conversations with actionable tips. So, okay, so it's a proven disorder. It's like, proven because I think that's important to say because sometimes we feel like, you know, we're all super distracted, the phones, the screens everywhere, like it's making our kids more distracted. And a lot of parents have worries about that. Like if you have a really distracted kids, is it this the product of the society? And you're saying, you know, if you have a kid who's really getting to the point of maybe a diagnosis, then like don't stop beating yourself up about it because this is really something that has a maybe a strong genetic component. I think uh, some of the, yes, speaking generally, Mm -hmm. way to think about it is part of a diagnosis of ADHD literally includes uh, the concept of chronic impairment. So, you know, everybody is distracted by the way we're living nowadays and everybody can get reactive and everybody, you know, all these you know, some people are more organized than others and all these things that go along with ADHD are true. Um, but, you know, to have an actual diagnosis of ADHD, you have to prove there's a chronic pattern going on for an extended amount of time that includes some kind of specific impairment, which doesn't mean necessarily you're failing out of school. It can be social, it can be behavioral, it can be uh, chronic stress, uh, it, can be, it can be part of it, particularly for kids who are uh, gifted academically, you know, so they're doing well, but they're kind of exhausting themselves excessively doing it. The really big concept that um, I think helps put ADHD in a developmental context that comes back to your original question of why it's so stressful is that ADHD is not, sort of has long outgrown its name. And the best way to think about ADHD at this point is that it's a developmental delay of a wide-ranging skill set called executive function, which is like our self-management skills. So it's like the brain CEO or the conductor of the orchestra. So it's not the skills, like it's not whether you know math or whether you, you know, know right from wrong or, or anything like that. You know, everything's in there. It's a matter of organizing, coordinating, and planning that gets affected. And so it's way bigger than attention. It's not even a short attention span. It's an attention mismanagement disorder. So you can hyper-focus on some things that you like. You can't mm-hmm. focus on things hard. You can't shift attention. Uh, there's a behavioral component. but And it also involves um, almost anything you can put the word management to. So you have to 
you know, manage projects, you have to manage time, you have to manage emotions, you know, all of those things involve executive function. Mm. Uh, so, so basically, you know, um, ADHD can affect a lot of stuff because it's basically anything that requires management, planning, and coordination can be affected by it. And it's also, um, if you want to come back to understanding how to, you know, make a diagnosis, um, one of the things we're really relatively new science and child development we now recognize is that executive function is a developmental class so that uh, just like language skills you know you, you don't expect a one-year-old to speak the same as a three-year-old because that's not how language works and that's kind of intuitive executive function is similar you don't expect a five-year-old to manage challenges the same as a 15-year-old or even a 25-year-old and that's a really important concept because i think it explains a lot of the challenges of how we're treating kids in general society nowadays um along you know I mean, I, uh, the example I use a lot has to do with like running a restaurant where, you know, you can get a bunch of five-year-olds to imagine to play pretend to run a restaurant because factually they probably know a lot of the stuff that goes into running a restaurant. They know that you need to have food and you need to cook it and you need to serve it and all of that's true. But clearly, you know, you wouldn't have a five-year-old even get a meal on the table at that mm. age. They know the facts, but they can't do any of the planning and coordination. Mm. And then the 15 yeah, you have kids who can probably get a meal on the table. You know, life is a big bell curve. Maybe there's some extraordinary child forced in amazing circumstances to, you know, to go work in a restaurant. But for the most part, you know, a 15-year-old is not quite ready to manage an entire business. You know, but the same thing, conceptually, they probably could list all the facts. I mean, they know it. They just don't have that coordination and planning maturity yet. And it turns out that the human brain matures into our mid-20s. You know, teens are teens for a reason, they're 10 years away from having fully mature judgment and planning. So by 25, obviously, that's the sort of job many people have. And, um, and that sort of illustrates this path of executive function. So when you're trying to say, does someone have ADHD? It's basically, you know, a two-step two -step thinking process related to that, which is like compared to peers the same age, are you far enough behind that you're causing yourself some kind of chronic impairment is basically mm -hmm. the shorthand for the diagnosis. And for the most part, it's worth looking into because even, you know, people I think, tend to conflate the treatments with the, you know, just understanding what's going on. And it's almost always valuable to understand what's going on in whatever decisions you make about treatments, not all of which are medical. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That makes a lot of sense. Um, we talked to Seth Perler. He talked about executive function a lot. We can, you know, dear listener, you can check out that episode as well. But, I, you know, this idea of there's just this delay in executive function, I really love your metaphor of running <laughs> running a restaurant because that makes that really puts it makes it very clear like you can you don't that management to be able to to think about all those things and to you know have the impulse control and to just it, all the the logistics and things around that so for a parent who's has an ADHD kid let's imagine you have a six-year-old or a seven-year-old, right, who's been in school now for a couple of years starting to get into academic work and they're realizing my kid is having a lot of trouble managing this. Maybe we're starting to get in, you know, starting to explore diagnoses and things like that. How do these, this lack of um, self-management skills, how does it create an, an environment for the parents? How does it add to like the stress of the parents in the home? Layers and layers of challenge is what it comes down to. I mean, I'm, I'm, first of all, obviously we all struggle when our kids struggle. So some of it is just one of the best one-line descriptions of ADHD ever from Russ Barkley. I probably overquote is that ADHD isn't a disorder of not knowing what to do. It's a disorder of not doing what you know. So 
know, it's like watching, you know, raising a child who's just struggling with themselves lots because they forget or they get off task or they get impulsive or they, you know, emotion's a huge part of ADHD. So they could have like too quick to frustrate, too quick to anger. You know, that leads to problems with friends or in the classroom. All of that makes, you know, leads parents to suffer too. And then on a very practical level, executive function skills are the skills that allow you to be independent. So kids with ADHD generally rely on their parents much longer than their peers do. In fact, that can go on all the way through high school because um, executive function skills are the skills you use for planning and problem solving. So kids with ADHD are basically, this actually goes for adults too. I mean, anyone with ADHD has a challenge with the skills that would allow you to go after managing your own ADHD, which is a very unique situation. So having ADHD, you know, requires a lot of support and intervention because your ADHD gets in the way of the plans you're making to manage in the first place. And it's, you know, so it's all really demanding and stressful, very reliant on, you know, if you have a, you know, if you, I think it's very important for kids with ADHD, uh, initially for the adults and then for the kids too, when, you know, as they get older and begin to understand it, to recognize that, you know, you, you are behind in actual skills, which means, you know, and the example I use in schools a lot is if you're forgetful around things like handing your homework, no amount of just like marking your grades down over and over again is going to fix that. You know, it's not that you need to be motivated more. It's that somebody mm. needs to like take the time to create a system that teaches you how to be less forgetful. Mm. And, you know, so that, you know, kids with ADHD often internalize that instead. And, you know, if they just keep getting poor grades because they can never hand in their homework without you know, getting some kind of structured support around it, you know, they just start to feel bad about themselves and assume that's how, you know, they are as students, you know, they, 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 you know, they develop an internal story around it. And, um, but I, you know, this is where it just becomes a lot of work for parents and teachers of, you know, this, the only solution, if you look at it as like, these are skills that are behind is to, you know, is for the adults initially to create a system that allows a child to thrive and that they can learn from that they pick up eventually, but it can take an awful lot of time. So, you know, that means a lot of, you know, intervention structure routine at home and a lot of the same type of stuff at school. And, um, and it's so, you know, you can just keep digging and digging when it comes to ADHD. It goes all the way through like high school where study skills are executive function based. So, you know, a high school student with ADHD might come across as if they just don't care and work hard when in reality, what's going on is with poor executive function. They just haven't the slightest idea of how or why to study, you know, mm. which is a different issue entirely. To me, I imagine this is like a, an incredible stress for parents, right? Because you're, you say you have a seven-year-old, you're expecting them to be able to listen to you and to follow directions, and then they're getting distracted. You know, you're expecting certain things at different developmental milestones. You're expecting levels of independence because you were working hard. <laughs> you're wanting this child to have some more independence by the time they're 10. You're wanting them to do chores around the house and to remember to, you know, feed the cat and to, you know, all the di different things and to make their own lunch and to remember to bring it. And, you know, when when they're 11 and 12 and et cetera, all these ages, you know, you're you're wanting and expecting these levels of self-management and maturity. And so it, it kind of, as you describe this, Mark, like it makes me think of the idea of of the term discipline, right? And like we think that the term discipline means to sort of like punish, right? Like the idea of like you get this bad grade because you're you're not, you know, the rewarding or punishing this behavior. But 
I always like to think of the word discipline from the word, you know, as the same root as the word disciple, right? Like where it is to follow or to teach, you know, where you're learning. And to me, this really points to, for the parents, really shifting that, your mindset into really a lot of teaching and learning of organizational skills and systems and, um, and, and really trying to like become your child's executive function management kind of teacher in some way. Is that kind of the role the parents get thrust into? Definitely. Yeah. I mean, there's, yes, for sure. And, and I mean, there's almost, I was, as you were saying that, it, there's like two or three things that came to mind for me. I mean, one is, is, um, again, going back to that first question you asked me earlier, or one of the questions you asked me earlier about like, how did this start integrating to medical care is it's hard. And if you don't acknowledge the fact that parenting is kind of stressful and overwhelming to begin with, and then you're kind of raising the bar, you know, mm. that it becomes even harder to do all these things that are being asked of you. So that you know, one of it is just to do all this, you know, starting with that sense of mindfulness for parents or self-care in some way or whatever it is for you that helps you stay resilient as a parent, you know, makes it easier to navigate all this, make hard choices, stick to your plans. So that's, that's, def that's one thing. It's definitely true. The second part is, um, you know, around executive function. There's many, many different parts to executive function, but yes, a lot of just like, how do you learn to do your morning routine? How do you learn to do your homework initially does start with the routines parents create for sure. And then the third one that's really important that you're alluding to, I think, is that um, discipline doesn't mean, there's a different way to use the word discipline, which is that it can be positive or negative. It doesn't mean punishment necessarily. And there's research saying that kids with ADHD are corrected more than they're praised at like a, the numbers quoted differently, like a three to one ratio by the time they hit kindergarten because they are off task. And the, um, the nuance there is that to learn, they do need some correction, you know, so that, you know, programs that sort of push for just positive discipline, in my experience, don't actually work. I mean, kids need correction, they need limits, they need boundaries. However, they're, they're heading the right direction because especially when kids have ADHD, you know, they need a lot of positive parenting in order to just have that. It's almost like if you want to think of it a little overly literally, it's like to have a positive relationship, you need a lot of positive connection, a lot of positive feedback, a lot of, you know, valuing your strengths. So, you know, you, you need like a coordinated effort to do all that. So positive parenting to get meeks are definitely, you know, disciplined. They're like vital for starting to steer kids behavior when they have ADHD. And I want to just interrupt you right there, just so we understand what the term means, right? So when we're talking about positive parenting techniques and things like that, you're talking about, like, um, instead of saying what they're doing wrong, like, and talk to them about what they're do, you know, what they can do right, or, you know, encouraging and, and you know, acknowledging the things they are doing right, that kind of thing? Um. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, I mean, um, when I organize my thoughts around, it, it's like almost like three different areas you can look at. One is, is just, um, positive time together, just mm. setting aside time, making sure that, you know, you value their, what they enjoy and immerse themselves and play together and, you know, family meals and just all the positive time is one piece of it. Uh, the second piece, which overlaps with both of the topics we've talked about today is, um, uh, what you're saying, what you just said is like labeling the positive stuff too, um, which is actually almost like a mindfulness exercise yeah. because when life gets, when life gets chaotic and busy, you know, what stands out are the things that don't go well. And that might be the only thing your child hears from you on the way out the door in the morning. 
um, as opposed to just, you know, making almost like a mindfulness activity of paying attention to and noticing all the things they're doing well. You know, even a misbehaving child is usually doing more things right than wrong. It's just that they have these other behaviors too. So you want to praise, praise the positives, not in an empty way. Empty praise doesn't have much value, but, but really find those moments that go well. And then uh, if you really want to get into the nitty gritty, the third piece is actually um, actively using reward plans that reward the opposite of a problem. So that just sort of becomes a goal setting activity instead of an avoiding you know, bad behavior specifically, mm. like I don't trouble. It's more like let's work towards this goal of speaking more kindly to my sister, that type of thing. So, so positive parenting techniques, you know, are this kind of foundation of parenting that um, set a certain tone and actually do correct a lot of behaviors in a lot of different ways, although they don't tend to stand alone. Okay. So you're allowed to be human and see the frustrating things too. Uh, kind of that's kind of what I'm here. Like that's, if I'm a parent and I'm like, okay, that's... I want to focus on the positive things, but oh my God, the you know, whatever is happening. Like you're allowed to be human and be frustrated at this like behavior 100%. that's maybe like the cat your your kid is pulling the cat's tail, you know, or whatever it is. Right. I mean, I, I get really frustrated sometimes with the per with, you know, like you know, when the suggestions made to parents that they're going to steer behavior like Mary Poppins, you know, and that's going to work, you know, it just, it's so exhausting as a parent when you're led to believe that's possible. You know, we're going to get frustrated by things and kids need to get in trouble once in a while because they learn from it. Um, and it turns out that the, the positive parenting stuff is quite, quite important because that's, you know, emotionally how kids should feel. And it sets a tone that you definitely want to emphasize and all of that's real. And then you're going to have moments, just like you said, where you lose it or you get frustrated by a particular behavior or your child needs to get in trouble. And all of that's fine too, you know, and um, one, I think one thing that relates to this conceptually is that in early childhood in particular, most learning behaviorally is just from immediate feedback. And, you know, the way I often describe it is that discussion is like one path of learning, but it's like the five to 10 year plan, you know, like kids don't often just change their behavior from a good talking to on a Saturday, you know, um, you know, discussion is really important for many relational reasons, but it's just not how kids are learning when they're in early childhood in terms of behavior. So what's going to steer their behavior is either, you know, reinforcing the things we want to reinforce or discouraging the things we want to discourage. So the, you know, limit setting is, equ you know, equally important as positive parenting, although you want to be, you know, you hopefully are doing it less than the positive stuff, but it's equally important. And especially when kids have ADHD, you know, if you have a self-management disorder, you need to be corrected regularly. and, and Problem solving things like timeouts is just vital because you have to empower yourself as a parent to um, to be able to you know teach your kids that you know it's okay to be angry but you can't cross that line you know that's just part of how kids you know especially I mean I think all kids but especially with ADHD it's important to be able to do that as a parent. Let's go back to parents. Like it, you talk about mindfulness and you talk about how it can help kids, but you can also talk about how it can help parents. And like we are parents are you know it's like we know it's super hard to begin with and then you have an adhd kid and you, we're just like saying okay now you have to take your parenting and you like you said raise the bar like now you need to step up in this major way and a lot of parents are thinking okay the mindset kind of turns into a lot of time my kid has this problem my kid has this diagnosis i'm going to sacrifice everything and kind of put all my attention to my kid so that I can help my child. And this has become the most important thing for, for, you know, my highest priority. And then they sacrifice themselves. And this is, this is not going to work. I'm, I'm imagining. Talk to us a little bit about 
how parents can manage all the challenges that they're dealing with when they have a kid with a diagnosis? Well, I'd start from, I mean, it's probably it's one of those things that the research has to back up, even though it may, you know, maybe intuitive or for explaining it well. I mean, kids, parents of kids with ADHD, you know, the research has even shown, you know, struggle with anxiety, depression, they lose confidence in their parenting, it strains marriages. It, you know, it does all these things that in the end, um, not just make you feel bad, but actually undermine your own resilience, you know, your own ability to handle and bounce back from challenging situations. So, you know, I think it goes for parents as much as it goes for any, you know, teachers, doctors, anyone in a caretaking field. You know, it's often overlooked that if we're going to be at our best helping other people, we need to at least take care of ourselves enough to, you know, to feel strong enough to do that. And, um, and that takes some effort. I think, you know, when it comes to something at hand as specific as mindfulness, and it's not that I think everybody has to practice mindfulness. I think everyone could benefit from it, but the most important thing is taking care of yourself enough that you can, Mm -hmm. you know, recover and keep doing the things you need to be doing to take care of everybody in your family and everybody in the world, but everybody you're responsible for. Um, and, um, so, um, you know, that really is the, the foundational you know, connection between mindfulness and ADHD, really mindfulness and parenting to me, you know, I think there's sometimes a perception that because mindfulness certainly does emphasize typically a type of meditation practice that increases focus and that's real. Um, but it doesn't erase ADHD, you know, unfortunately it, it supports ADHD care. It helps with attention. I think the really important thing it does on the most basic level is that life can be really stressful and overwhelming and anything you can do that helps you manage that is going to let you be at your best more often, you know, doing whatever it is you need to be doing day to day, whether that is just your ability to, um, maybe notice when you're caught up in something stressful and then life shifts and suddenly you're in the backyard playing and just give that your full attention. You know, that's relates to mindfulness practice or, you know, when you get caught up in, um, you know, I think this, I was just talking to someone this morning who was saying like, they just can't help themselves. They start telling, you know, they start telling these stories that go farther and farther into the future, projecting, you know, from what today, and then they feel miserable, you know, mm-hmm. because this homework program today becomes like, you know, failing out of college 15 years from now. And, you know, it's like, it's important to problem solve. And yet you can also start to work with those types of things because they, again, undermine your resilience, which changes how you respond emotionally to things when they get ranched, you know, ratcheted up, which changes decision-making, which changes, you know, it just, it, it all, you know, that is the, the fundamental premise of mindfulness practice on some level is, you know, that when we practice it for ourselves, it's not really for, our, when we practice it ourselves, it's not really just for us, you know, that mm-hmm. when we are able to navigate things with more skill, where we stay balanced or just recover quicker, you know, that influences everyone around us profoundly. And that's true in really any situation. So you can look at it like, you know, um, a couple of examples, I think for parents that I think, you know, are, are sort of, uh, sort of can resonate is I think we all know that when we come back from like a week's vacation, if someone hands us a problem, we're going to think about it more clearly and handle it differently. And we would handle the same problem in the middle of like three weeks of, you know, chaos around school, you know, that point where we're exhausted and stressed, we're not going to think about that problem in the same way. So that, you know, that's a little bit of like one aspect of what we're trying to get to with mindfulness practice is being able to, you know, approach that problem 
with enough clarity that we can, you know, make a good choice, even if it's a difficult one. Stay tuned for more Mindful Mama podcasts right after this break. Feel like you're the martyr in your family? You're not alone. Hey, this is Joanne. And Brie. And we're from the No Guilt Mom podcast. Brie, we talk to a lot of moms. Yeah, we sure do. And if you're a mom who has a to-do list that is so massive that you get overwhelmed and you shut down. Or if you fall into the habit of doing everything for everyone and don't know how to change it, we can help you become a No Guilt Mom. We're going to take you from family martyr to family model. That's role model so that you role model the behavior that you want to see out of your kids. You're going to go from being tired and overwhelmed to energized and guilt-free. Every week, you'll get actionable strategies that you can implement right away from the experts that we interview and from us. We also have a whole lot of fun. So check out the No Guilt Mom podcast everywhere you listen to your favorite shows. Well, hey there, Busy Mama. Are you looking for ways to make your life easier, your home less chaotic, and at the same time, add more joy to your life? My name is Deanna Yates, and I'm the host of Wanna Be Clutter Free, a podcast all about letting go of the stuff we don't need in our lives so that we can focus on what truly matters. Don't worry, I'm not going to tell you to throw it all away or make you feel guilty about keeping something you love, no matter how many other people don't quite understand it but I will give you practical and more importantly, actionable advice so that you can make progress right away. And you won't just hear it from me. There are amazing guests too. It's like having your bestie in your pocket, telling you it's okay to let go of the things that are not serving you and your family in a totally non-judgmental way. So join me over on the podcast where we can work on progress over perfection for those of us that want to be clutter-free. And then the other area that comes up a lot around family, particularly if you look at the emotional part of ADHD, it causes a lot of emotional reactivity. And um, without saying anyone, you know, it's like it's it's not your fault that your child is being emotional and reactive. And yet it's one of those things that if we can step, you know, if we sort of look at it as if we're advising a friend, we all know that if you meet reactivity with reactivity, you know, you get reactivity squared. You know, you never, that, that never leads to calm. It doesn't you know, mean it's easy or we're ever going to be perfect about that as a parent, but we can recognize that, you know, the better we become able to manage our own emotional state around that, which is, you know, another aspect of mindfulness practice, you know, managing your emotions, um, the better we're able to manage our own side of that interaction, you know, the quicker it's going to settle down. Even if someone has to get in trouble, you know, the whole situation is going to stay less volatile if we have, you know, if we're feeling grounded and managing our own emotions and the fact that, you know, we may recognize that we're getting frustrated and angry, but how we interact in that moment is going to change a lot, which doesn't mean we can aim to do perfect all the time. You know, even those of us who've been practicing mindfulness a long time lose it once in a while, but you get better and better at it if you practice. Yeah, yeah, I agree. And our emotions are contagious, right? Like, you know, especially little kids, right? Like they need to borrow our calm sometimes, right? They need that. They need us to be able to soothe them. So it's like our own ability to downregulate the practice of like recognizing and processing through whatever's happening and being able to also, I think like the biggest thing for me, I guess, as a parent with a mindfulness practice temper (laughs) is that when my kids are in 
a really intense, challenging situation. And I really feel it. You know, I'm feeling the intensity of their situation. I'm feeling worried or scared or whatever it is. One of the biggest benefits I can identify for myself is this idea that I can sit with the discomfort of what is happening. Like I can, stuff is going down and I can sit and breathe for it through it and it's not going to kill me. I don't have to react right away. You know what I mean? I can just practice this like incre- this tolerance, incredible tolerance compared to what I used to have, you know, and um, not all the time, right? But like most, a lot of the time. And and then I'm like psyched when it, I can do it. I'm like, yes, Hunter, good job. You did it. Right. But right. it always helps to downregulate the situation faster. Always. Right. Yeah. And I, you said little kids, but I would totally project that for yeah. you know, the teens. I mean, yeah, you know, it's like if they're going to be reactive themselves and if you beat it the same way, that isn't going to, you know, go anywhere, you know, easy. Um, so, um, you know, one thing I think that we've alluded to a few times that I think is worth um, touching on before we end too is, um, you know, part of mindfulness practice is the perspective we bring to things, which is, I think, of uh, two things. You know, one of you know one of the big challenges as a parent is that you know life is messy and uncertain, and we want only the best for our kids, and we can get caught up in trying to like fix and you know protect and make sure everything goes perfectly all the time, and get really caught up in all that, and yet life doesn't work that way. You know, we can do our best to set our kids up to succeed and help them when they're struggling. And yet that, that expectation, you know, like, like, I think you were alluding to, you know, learning to sort of sit with uncertainty and not know the answer and all of that is a practice in and of itself, because we can exhaust ourselves pretty quickly if we don't recognize situations where, you know, all we can do is do our best because there is no answer, you know, and that is really hard as a parent. And that's one, so one side of things I think is learning to be a little more comfortable with like, you know, we're doing what we can here, but it's still going to be uncertain for a while, which I don't mean in a light way. I mean, it's really hard, but it is, you know, reality sometimes in any situation for any of us, which relates to the second thing, which you, you've certainly mentioned a couple of times today. And I think I have too, which is part of all of this practice is also just letting go of just perfectionism. You know, we, there's like this loud inner critic most of us live with in different ways in life, uh, you know, it's sort of. We, we tend to harsh on ourselves when, I think I'm dating myself using that term, but um, we tend to be really harsh with ourselves when we have something challenging going on in a way we would never talk to a friend. It's totally in, you know, wrapped up in parenting of just like, you know, am I doing the right thing or I didn't do the right thing or I shouldn't have said that or I made a bad choice or, you know, this like this judgmental voice is, is part of what exhausts us as parents. I mean, certainly when you asked, me, what other thing, you know, what's changed in real mindfulness practice, you know, letting go of that sense of perfectionism, which is really nuanced. It doesn't mean you're not always trying to do your best. It doesn't mean you're not always trying to improve, but you, you know, there's a part of the practice where you can shift your perspective. Again, it's that same um, contradiction that happens a lot in life of like, you know, we would advise, most of us would advise a young child, like, you know, do your best, learn from your mistakes. Go apologize if you need to, but it's okay, you know, and then just, you know, get back up and try again, you know, and really focus on that perspective of self-care and effort. And that's how most of us would advise like a child or friend, but that is not how most of us treat ourselves, you know, like our own inner world does not play out that way. And um, so part of all of this, part of why, you know, mindfulness can help parents 
is when we, and and this comes out of you know Kristen Neff's self compassion research in, in uh, as she said uh, at Austin, is that if we can shift that inner dialogue some to, you know, give ourselves a little room to problem solve and do our best and occasionally make a mistake and recover and learn from it, you know, we that's another thing that definitively builds our resilience and helps us feel better. Yeah, and it not only helps us feel better. I think it's so practical. Like, because I'm a miserable puddle on the floor if I'm telling myself I'm a terrible mother. And I'm, and in a way, it's almost like this weird, like, selfish, self-pity, like, misery pit, you know? And if I'm practicing self-compassion, if I'm like, okay, that stunk, that was hard, that's, you know, but it's like, oh, it's hard. You you can do this. You can, you know, I can get back up. I can try again. You know what I mean? I can get, become more present with my family and all the demands. And, you know, it's it's a, definitely a resilience practice. I mean, it's just super practical, I think, as well, just like mindfulness is. Oh, my God, there's so much here. Oh, sorry, you wanted to add. Because I realized just I know we have to end. The one thing I didn't say that I want to yeah. end with, is what that all steers you back to is it lets you navigate the fact that you know, there's an awful lot of practical stuff that has to get done around ADHD. And, you know, so that's why I just want to make sure we mention that at some point today of like managing the school plan and working with people outside of school, like psychologists to manage, you know, teach executive function or doing it as a parent some or making decisions about medication or dealing with screen time as a gentleman's when it comes to ADHD. You know, this is, you know, I just wanted to make sure we're clear that, you know, mindfulness is not replacing any of ADHD management, but is supporting you know, all of that, which can be quite hard. Yeah, yeah, I, I completely understand. I get I get that. So um, more more podcasts for you, dear listener, on all the practical stuff later, I guess. We'll have to talk about that, those practical management uh, tips and tricks and all the things that need to happen. It's a lot. It's a lot, dear listener. So I hope this has helped you, Mark. I really, I really appreciate you coming on to talk to me about it and taking the time and then um, you, of course, you supported the Raising Good Human Summit, and we talk about it more there. This has been such a pleasure and a joy. Um, I really, really appreciate it. If people want to talk more about you and, and see your work, where can they find you? Uh, the easiest thing is to just go to my website, which is developmentaldoctor.com. Everything you need, you can find there. Awesome. Again, thank you so much for your work and your time and your like super like calming presence. New York is is uh, lucky to have you, Mark. Well, thank you for being here. I appreciate everything you're doing too. Hey, I hope this episode was valuable to you. I hope you liked it. I hope you learned something or maybe you just felt a little less not alone, which would be great, which is definitely one of the intentions I have for this podcast that I want you to just feel a little less alone in whatever you are going through. One of the very best ways you can support the podcast, if you like it, is to leave an Apple podcast rating and review. I want to give a shout out to M Vela Esco 07, which is a five-star review, and they say, highly recommend. I recently discovered Mindful Mama, and I'm so glad I did. I'm consistently impressed with the engaging conversations, insightful content, and actionable ideas. I truly learn something every time I tune in. Go ahead and give it a follow. This podcast will quickly become a favorite in your feed. Thank you so much. It makes such a big difference to have those ratings and reviews. So thank you, thank you, thank you. We are heading into summer here as I record this. In my family, 
And things are getting a little more loose and a little more relaxed, and I'm liking that. Um, and I'm not loving the incredible heat in Delaware. Oh, my God. But I hope that things are maybe a little looser and a little more relaxed for you. And I hope that you're seeing the things about this time that you can appreciate. It's amazing how times change. So my daughter, my oldest daughter, Maggie, uh, she went to Germany recently on a two-week exchange trip. And oh my God, that day I just dropped her off at the high school parking lot and she got in the bus. I'm crying tears. I'm just like so sad. And it's not because I'm worried about her. Nothing like that. I'm just sad because I'm going to miss her. And it's like a, a preview of her going to college. And, you know, things are really good for us in the teen years now that I've like turned things around with like the way things were going in the in the beginning years and we're really and we're close and I love her and I miss her and I want to spend time with her and so that was really hard and sad. So listen, I know if you have little kids, it feels like it's a bazillion years away. It really feels like a bazillion years away. I remember thinking that time is never ever going to come and then it comes and you're like, "Wow, it's true what all the old grandmas say like it goes super fast." It's true. So wherever you are, in your parenting journey, I hope in whatever stage, because there's like really annoying and frustrating things in every stage and there's really lovely things at every stage. So I hope that you can practice to bring your attention to those lovely things that you can appreciate and that that will help lift you up and maybe get you through this time with um, some more grace and some more ease. And anyway, I hope that this helps listen to the podcast. And I'm wishing you a great week, my friend. Thank you so much for listening. Namaste. I'd say definitely do it. It's really helpful. It will change your relationship with your kids for the better. It will help you communicate better. And just, I'd say communicate better as a person, as a wife, as a spouse. It's been really a positive influence in our lives. So definitely do it. I'd say definitely do it. It's so worth it. The money really is inconsequential when you get so much benefit from being a better parent to your children and feeling like you're connecting more with them and not feeling like you're yelling all the time or you're like, why isn't things working? I would say definitely do it. It's so, so worth it. It'll change you. No matter what age someone's child is, it's a great opportunity for personal growth and it's a great investment in someone's family. I'm very thankful I had this. You can continue in your old habits that aren't working or you can learn some new tools and gain some perspective to shift everything in your parenting. Are you frustrated by parenting? Do you listen to the experts and try all the tips and strategies, but you're just not seeing the results that you want? Or are you lost as to where to start? Does it all seem so overwhelming with too much to learn? Are you yearning for a community of people who get it, who also don't want to threaten and punish to create cooperation? Hi, I'm Hunter Clark-Fields, and if you answered yes to any of these questions, I want you to seriously consider the Mindful Parenting membership. You'll be joining hundreds of members who have discovered the path of mindful parenting and now have confidence and clarity in their parenting. 
This isn't just another parenting class. This is an opportunity to really discover your unique, lasting relationship, not only with your children, but with yourself. It will translate into lasting, connected relationships, not only with your children, but your partner too. Let me change your life. Go to mindfulparentingcourse.com to add your name to the waitlist so you will be the first to be notified when I open the membership for enrollment. I look forward to seeing you on the inside. mindfulparentingcourse.com Are you overwhelmed by the things that get in the way of you doing what you want to do? Are you looking for ways to simplify life to better align with your values? Do you want to create space in your schedule so you have room for more of the good stuff? Play, joy, relationships, gratitude, and more? If you answered yes to any of these questions, I invite you to check out Edit Your Life, a podcast to help you edit the unnecessary from your life so you have more room to enjoy the awesome. Through episodes with me, Christine Co., and a range of super smart, compassionate, and thoughtful guests, you'll come away with big picture insights and practical ways to declutter your home, schedule, and mental space without getting bogged down by perfection. I have always believed that small moments and actions matter tremendously. My goal is to help you find agency and space in your life through doable baby steps that will leave you feeling accomplished instead of overwhelmed. Check out Edit Your Life wherever you enjoy your podcasts.